0: Okay, let's pray together and we'll go to the Word. In this passage we're going to look at this morning in Luke 9, um, uh, Jesus addresses many misconceptions that the disciples have. You can see that they are lacking in understanding and they are lacking in faith, and they don't quite understand what is happening. And Jesus speaks and he addresses these misconceptions. And as we go through this passage today, uh, I, I you know, believe it will be helpful for us. So I'm going to read a few verses from the passage, Luke nine forty-four. He says, Let these words sink down into your ears, for the Son of Man is about to be betrayed into the hands of men. And verse forty eight. He says, whoever receives this little child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives him who sent me. For he who is least among you will be great. Verse 50, do not forbid him, for he who is not against us is on our side. Verse 55, you do not know what manner of spirit you are, Verse 60, let the dead bury their own dead, but you go and preach the kingdom of God. So, Father, we pray once more for your word to be blessed to our lives. And just we ask for your presence, your anointing, your ministry. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Okay, the book of Luke. We are now in chapter 9. There is a turning point in chapter 9. Chapters 4 through 9 have had a focus on the public ministry of Jesus, the miracles demonstrating his power and authority over sickness, disease, um, the elements, and death itself. And the disciples have been watching and learning And this has been the centerpiece of their training so far to to come to terms with who Jesus really is. And this was the question of the hour around Galilee and in the hearts of many. Who is this man? Because of his miracles, because of his reputation, Some would say, this is John the Baptist raised from the dead. Some would say Elijah or another prophet. And Jesus asked that all-important question to his disciples. Who do you say that I am? And Peter, leading that answer, says, you are the Christ, the Son of God. So the disciples came to to clear faith and understanding. We see in Matthew 14, where they say, truly, you are the Son of God. You are the Son of the Most High. Before they had asked the question, who is this? But now they make the declaration, you are the Christ. You are the Son of the Most High. And also in John 6, when, Jesus, when Peter had made his uh, great confession, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God, Once again, we see that they had come to that clear understanding and faith. However, they didn't yet fully understand the unfolding program, that the kingdom would be delayed and now it was time for the church. And from this point, Jesus then began to speak about not the kingdom and the throne, but the cross and the suffering, that he would go to Jerusalem and be betrayed into the hands of men. The Jewish leaders had become hardened in their unbelief and had rejected Jesus despite his miracles and the disciples had come to faith. And right after this confession of who Jesus is, Jesus makes first mention of the church. He says in verse 17 there, Blessed are you, Simon, flesh and blood has not revealed this to you. Verse 18, upon this rock... I will build my church. And that was the first mention of of the church. He also makes the first prediction, we go back to Luke in verse 22, of the passion, of his suffering, of the cross. The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and raised again the third day. What he's saying here to the disciples is, yes, I am the Messiah. I am the promised one. I am the Christ. But it's important for you to know that I will be betrayed and into the hands of men and be rejected by the leaders. This rejection will result in, this, in my suffering. Suffering many things, he says, and to be killed. And again, from this time... He is speaking about his death in Jerusalem. In this very chapter, in verse 51, it says, From that time, he set his face like a flint to Jerusalem. And then there was the transfiguration, which we studied together. This is just a quick review to get us all up to speed. And the three disciples, Peter, James and John, were on the mount and he was transfigured, changed in front of them, that he would give them a foretaste of the kingdom that was now delayed but yet was to come. And they saw him in his glory. And Jesus told them, don't tell anyone until after the resurrection. And we read in Mark that they kept the matter to themselves, discussing what rising from the dead meant. So do you see that? They, they understood and believed he was the Messiah. They confess he is the Son of God, and yet they didn't understand. What? The resurrection, the cross, they didn't yet understand that. So let's pick up again in Luke from verse 37. Now it happened on the next day when they had come down from the mount of transfiguration that a great multitude met him. What a picture that is, coming down from glory, down to the dust, down to the people. What a wonderful picture that is of his very humiliation, that God became a man to minister to men to seek and save the lost. We read in Mark's account, When he came down from the mount, he came to the disciples and he saw a multitude around them. Remember, he only went up with Peter, James, and John. And as they came down, he saw the other disciples and there was a crowd around them. And the scribes were disputing with them. And immediately when they saw him, the people were amazed and running to him, greeted him. And he asked the scribes, what are you discussing with them? What are you talking about with my guys? And the past, the verses that follow give us four incidents where it clearly shows the disciples lacked understanding and lacked faith at this point. So as Jesus asks this question, what are you talking about? In verse 38, suddenly a man from the multitude cried out, saying, Teacher, I implore you, look on my son, for he is my only child. It's Luke that mentions he is the only child, that intimate, important detail. In Matthew's account, the the father says, Lord, have mercy on my son. He has seizures and is suffering greatly. He often falls into the fire or into the water. Imagine the torment for the father for how this had gone on for, for so many years. In verse 39, it says, Behold, the Spirit seizes him, and he suddenly cries out, and it convulses him, that he foams at the mouth, and it departs from him with great difficulty, bruising him. Mark's Gospel adds, it throws him down, he grinds his teeth, and he becomes rigid. We've, we have great compassion for this Father, and he he says to the Lord, I implored your disciples to cast it out, but they could not. And that's interesting because we remember before he had given the disciples power over all demons, that they were actually casting out demons and seeing people healed, but not in this instance. This instance would once again set the stage to show Jesus' unique person and power and authority. Jesus answered in verse 41, All faithless and, or unbelieving, Perverse generation, how long will I be with you and bear with you? Bring your son here. In Mark's account, it tells us, when the spirit saw him, the spirit convulsed and, and the son fell on the ground and wallowed, foaming at the mouth. And Jesus asked the father, how long has this been happening to him? And the father says, from his childhood. Jesus wasn't asking the question for his own sake. He was allowing everyone to know that this possession and this suffering and this torment had happened for so many years that there was a demonic stronghold in this child's life and Jesus was just about to set him free. Also in Mark's account, it goes on. um, He says, If you can do anything, the Father says, have compassion upon us and help us. And you hear the pleading, desperate heart of the Father. And Jesus says to him, If you can believe, all things are possible to him who believes. And immediately the father of the child cried out with tears and said, Lord, I believe, but help my unbelief. I think we identify with that verse, don't we? We Thankful for that verse is there. It gives us some understanding that we have faith, but we need faith. We do believe, oh Lord, but sometimes help my unbelief, that sometimes I am faithless, that sometimes I don't believe. Even in my prayers, sometimes I am lacking faith. We understand what the Father is saying here. Oh, I believe, but help my unbelief. Back to Luke And as he was still coming, the demon threw him down and convulsed him. And Jesus rebuked the unclean spirit and healed the child and gave him back to his father. Again, Luke notes that that detail of compassion that Jesus gives the son back to the father. In Matthew's account, it says Jesus rebuked the demon and it came out of the boy and he was healed at that moment. In Mark's account, it says he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying, deaf and dumb spirit, I command you come out of him and enter him no more. And the spirit cried out, convulsed him greatly, and came out of him, and the boy became as one dead, so that many said, he is dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up, and he arose. Now in Luke's account, he gives us the reaction of the crowd. Look at this in verse 43. And they were amazed at the majesty of God. What a wonderful phrase. They were amazed at the majesty or the greatness of God. But while everyone marveled at all the things which Jesus did, the same time that people are saying, wow, look at that, what just happened. Jesus said to His disciples... Let these words sink down deep into your ears for the Son of Man is about to be betrayed into the hands of men. He's contrasting here the wonder of what is happening and the crowds saying, wow, he's contrasting that with the imminent or the the reality of his rejection that so many are marveling in this moment but he will be delivered to the cross. So he says, listen, let this sink down into your ears. Look at the next verse. But they did not understand his saying. It was hidden from them so that they did not perceive it. And they were afraid to ask him about this saying. Again. Clearly this is the Messiah. Why is he talking about being portrayed? Why is he talking about dying and being delivered to the hands of men? They didn't grasp that. They didn't understand that. Look how the crowds love him. Look at the people. And, and how can we uh, say this? We believe that the, he is the Messiah and he will reign and the kingdom is among us. But they did not ask him about this saying. Perhaps they didn't want to hear any more about his death. In Matthew's account, it tells us that the disciples came to Jesus in private. And they asked the question, why couldn't we drive out the demon? And he replied, because you have so little faith. Truly I tell you, if you had faith as small as a mustard seed, you can say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it will move. Nothing will be impossible for you. Verse 46. So with the disciples' misunderstanding and misconceptions and not understanding what was happening, and thinking that the kingdom was here, okay, the church, okay, the resurrection, what's he talking about? And then they ask this question, verse 46, asking which one of them would be the greatest. Perhaps we feel a little bit embarrassed about that question as we read it, for how that is easily found in the hearts of men. Completely missing the point of the one who came to serve, and they are talking about which one of them would be the greatest. You're like, oh, Please. It is embarrassing. In Mark's account, <clears throat> Jesus, they, they're walking and they are dis- his disciples are arguing and he turns to them and he says, what are you arguing about? And it says they kept silent because they had disputed among themselves who would be the greatest. In other words, they had shame. Shame. They did not want to admit, oh, you know what you're talking about? They didn't answer him because of that. This comes in the contrast to the beautiful humility we find in the life and the heart and the ministry of Christ. They are still thinking in terms of the kingdom. Jesus perceiving the thought of their heart, he took a little child and he set him by him. Jesus takes this child as as an object lesson, if you will, to teach the disciples something. Mark's account says he took the child in his arms. And he uses this moment to teach two principles. Luke only records one of them. But in Matthew's account, he says, Therefore, whoever humbles himself as this child is the greatest in the kingdom. First, he uses the child to say, you, your heart needs to be reflective of the heart of this child, the simplicity, the humility. But then Luke doesn't re- record that particular lesson. He highlights the need to care for another as you would need to care for this child. So he says in verse 48, Whoever receives this little child in my name receives me. Whoever receives me, receives him who sent me. This attitude to accept, to welcome, to be inclusive, to love. In this society, you would normally give your honor to an equal or a superior or a leader. Children, socially speaking, were further down the bottom of the ladder that they would serve, that they would be used to to, you know, bring in the water or something. Jesus turns the social pyramid upside down and he says, this is the essence of the kingdom, that you would welcome this little child, that the doors are wide open for one and for all, that none are excluded. Those who would have the heart of a child are welcome and received. So this is how he answers the question who will be the greatest. Look at this last phrase. For he who is least among you, all will be great. Well, he doesn't say the greatest, but he says will be great. This is God's estimation of what it means to be great. It means to have this humble heart and a heart that is, is accepting towards others. The lessons continue. In the next verse, we see... They say to him, Master, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we forbade him because he does not follow with us. And again, you're kind of like, (laughs) oh, you know, they are disciples. They believe in you, but they're not with us. And they were casting out demons, so what should we do? And again, these verses address, you know, misconceptions and divisions that we see even in the church in the 21st century reveals the attitude of rivalry, of jealousy among the 12. They follow but not with us. And Jesus says, "...do not forbid him, for he who is not against us is on our side." And in this, in this passage, if you would take all the disciples' questions and misconceptions and put them together, and then you put together Jesus' answers and how he corrects and addresses them, there are such valuable lessons for every one of us. The disciples said, forbid. Jesus said, leave him alone. And in, in, sadly, in, in Christianity, there is a lot of division and exclusivity for various reasons. This doesn't mean as Christians we need to join together, band together and minister with we're not it's not an ecumenical mindset but it means that we even though we may have minor variances and differences in our cultures and understanding of certain secondary doctrines we love and honor our brothers and our sisters and they may do things differently to us and we may do things differently to them But that's okay. It would be quite arrogant for us to think, well, we've got it right. But it's sad about them. No church has it 100% right. No pastor has perfect theology. No Christian understands all things. We are all growing on a journey and we look to our brothers and sisters and other churches and say, okay, let's go forwards. We're doing what we can. We have enough critics outside the church. I got a chill when I said that. We don't need to be criticizing our brothers unnecessarily. In Mark's account, he says, whoever gives you a cup of water to drink in my name because you belong to Christ. Isn't that wonderful? Assuredly, I say to you, he will... by no means lose his reward. Jesus is saying this. He's even speaking about rewards in the context of giving a cup of water or let's say ministering, encouraging, praying for another brother and sister. They may not be with us, but they are our brothers and sisters. He's strengthening the idea of ministry between or, or fellowship between uh, other believers. It reminds us of what Paul says in Philippians. Do you remember? There was a similar incident there in Philippians 1.15 where some preach Christ out of envy or rivalry or selfish ambition and others out of goodwill and out of love. And Paul's conclusion is this. What does it matter? That's what he says. The important thing is that in every way, whether from false motives or true, Christ is preached, and because of this, I rejoice. Now, of course, we would hope that Christ is preached and ministry is happening because of the right motive, but who are we to judge the motive of men? Let God do that. But Paul says, What does it matter if Christ is preached? We come to verse 51. And if you're a little bit tired this morning just shake yourself for a moment nudge your neighbor say hello hallelujah we're in the house of the Lord this is why we came verse 51 it came to pass when the time had come for him to be received up that he steadfastly set his face to go to Jerusalem Luke 9:51 again this brings this our uh, focus on this turning point after his public ministry and his rejection by the Jewish leaders and the people as the Messiah. Now he is looking to Jerusalem. He's looking to the cross. And the rest of the book really is Jesus' journey to Jerusalem. Not unlike Paul's journey to Rome, right? The last portion, those, those chapters at the end of Acts. Paul is now looking to Rome. Jesus is now looking to the cross, Verse 52, he sent messengers before his face, and as they went, they entered into the village of Samaritans to prepare for him, right? Apparently to arrange for them to stay overnight as they would travel from the south to the north, as they would travel uh, uh, from from Galilee to Jerusalem, sorry, from the north to the south, and... Um, Jewish pilgrims were normally not welcomed by the Samaritans, of course. They had different beliefs and they didn't have anything to do with each other. So verse 53 says, They did not receive him because his face was set to Jerusalem. So pilgrims en route to Jerusalem to worship were really not welcome. If you're on your way back from Jerusalem and you're passing through, that was okay. (laughs) Because you're leaving. But if you're on your way, you were not welcome. And when his disciples, James and John, saw this, and here we have another example of how the disciples were so off target in their attitude, in their, their uh, spirit. They said, Lord, do you want us to command fire to come down from heaven and consume them? Huh? Do you? Do you? just as Elijah did. I mean, obviously, we don't have the power to do that, but if you give us the power, we'll call call and have fire come down from heaven. And Jesus famously says, verse 55, he rebuked them and said, 'You you do not know what kind of spirit you have. What's incredible about this is that John is one of these two. John, who is known as the Apostle of Love, who writes 1st and 2nd and 3rd John, where love is emanating, where fellowship is emanating. We, we recognize the transformation that took place in this Son of Thunder. It's amazing, isn't it? We read in Acts 8.25, and this is only a, a couple of years after this, that Peter and John returned to Jerusalem and they preached the gospel in many Samaritan villages. Isn't that beautiful? John, who said, shall we call down fire from heaven shortly after the resurrection and after Pentecost, was preaching to these very same Samaritans. He rebukes them, verse 4. 56, for the Son of Man did not come to destroy men's lives, but to save them. And then they went to another village. And this is the last few verses here for this morning. And now it happened as they journeyed on the road. Someone said, Lord, I will follow you wherever I go. Isn't that beautiful? That's a wonderful faith confession. And in fact, in these verses, we see that three disciples are going to express their desire to follow. But they didn't quite expect the response that they would get. Jesus wanted to help them really count the cost. Words are easy, and he wanted to challenge it. So verse 58, he says, Foxes have holes, birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. You want to follow me? For these disciples, and in fact, for many disciples even around the world today in the persecuted church. Actually, we are uh, personally familiar with the situation now in Rayagada in India. We have supported the work. We pray for those dear brothers and sisters where seven. Now ten families, because three more a couple of weeks ago, were also expelled from the village, forced out by the Hindu leaders of the village to just start their life from scratch in the jungle with nothing because they, they decided to follow Jesus. And they had that confession. And that is repeated you know, all over the world. To be a follower of Jesus, for some, there will be a great price that comes with that. Verse 59. He said, then said another, he said to another, follow me. But he said, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. Now, does that sound unreasonable to ask that? I'll follow you, Lord, but first I want to go and bury my father. Now, the duty of burial in the Jewish community took precedence over anything else. If there was a feast day or a, a Sabbath, or whatever it was, if, if you had to bury the dead, that, that came in priority. And Jesus said to him, let the dead bury their own dead. Oh, sounds harsh. You go and preach the kingdom of God. Now, of course... When Jesus said this to this disciple, he knows the man. There is a, you know, perhaps everything that Jesus says to all the people and the disciples, we don't. it doesn't necessarily apply that way. I speak to the heart and life of everyone. But the principle does. The principle of discipleship. That there is a cost, there is a price. That words are easy. That to be a disciple... Salvation is free, but discipleship costs me something. And it's easy to go to church on a Sunday morning and hear a sermon, and some can't even do that. But discipleship is more than that. Discipleship is that every day I'm a follower of Jesus. I'm in the Word. I'm living by faith. Jesus challenges his disciple. And he says, if you want to be a disciple, your priorities change. That's the point. Your priorities change. Let the dead bury their dead. or oh, that has such a high priority that I would bury the dead. This is the point. Jesus is saying, as a disciple, your priorities change. And in Christianity, sadly... Many people's Christian lives is that of convenience and not conviction. And that's fine. We're free. And no one one is our judge. But Jesus says, if you want to be my disciple, it comes with a price. You know, And lovingly, the way he spoke so harshly to that disciple, that's an expression of great love and grace to that disciple. He didn't just want to say, oh yeah, great, yeah, follow me. No, he wanted to challenge him. He wanted a bit of spit and vinegar and look at that disciple and say, okay, listen, I love that confession, I love that you want to do that, and I'm with you, oh, I want you to follow all the way, but I want you to know. It will be challenged. It will come at a cost. It will be easy. There will be a right turn and a left turn, and that will come, and that will come, and it will be easy to take that turn. Oh, but if you follow me, there is great reward, but you have to make some hard decisions sometimes. That's the point. Verse 61, this is the last disciple that asked the question. And by the way, it's only Luke that records this third Uh, conversation, and another said, Lord, I will follow you, but but let me first go and bid them farewell who are at my house, and again, that's a simple, honorable, understandable request, in fact, Elisha asked Elijah the same thing, when Elijah, he was going to follow Elijah, and he said, I will go and say farewell to my family, and Elijah let him do it, He said, okay, go ahead. And then he went and he came back. But Jesus said, no one having put his hand to the plow and looking back is fit for the kingdom of God. Those words don't mince, do they? They don't, you know, there's no, those words, they speak right to the core, right to the heart. Jesus is stressing the importance of the mission and the importance of the call on somebody's life. Faithful are the wounds of a friend, you know, these hard words that Jesus speaks to his disciples or the hard words that we sometimes hear and read and think about that are in the scriptures are here to challenge us because we all have a baggage of flesh. We all know what it means to be tempted and to compromise and to choose my flesh. And the uh, the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. And sometimes I have to drag my flesh to the cross and I have to die, not sometimes, but many times... And repeatedly and daily, Luke 9, 23, daily take up your cross and follow me if you want to be my disciple. The call needs a full response. Not half-hearted, but fully trusting in him. And in that response, of course we could say, Lord, I believe, but help my unbelief lord i want to follow you but you know my weaknesses and my tendencies and can you help me can you strengthen me and he's faithful to do that but having his hand to the plow and looking back and of course this is using the analogy of a farmer in the field and what's he doing he's plowing he's planting he's looking for a crop and a fruit and a harvest and the careless farmer who is not aware, who is not committed, who is not working, who is not laboring, who is not faithful, he cannot expect the same crop and response of one who is. We're called to seek the kingdom first, not second, not last, but first. And there are promises that come with that. There are blessings that we discover along the way. We say, oh, but I lose this. Oh, but what we gain, what he gives us. There is no price that we can put on that. So we ask him, oh, Lord, I want to follow you, but I also understand my weaknesses, my flesh, my tendencies, and will you help me? Will you strengthen me? Will you help me grow in faith and understanding? Because I don't want to live a half-hearted spiritual life, but I want to come after you. I want to follow you. I want to be your disciple. Amen? So, Father, thank you for this morning. We thank you for these words and verses, as challenging as they may be to our hearts and lives. We just acknowledge we, are, we need to hear your voice. We need you to speak into our lives again and again and help us. Oh, help us, Lord. Help us, God, not to compromise. Help us build our convictions that we would follow you. We pray. Perhaps, as one here this morning, you are not sure of your salvation. You're not sure if you're saved. You're, you're not sure if Jesus is your personal savior. Or oh, in the privacy of your heart this morning, as God looks on. Just say to God, oh, oh, I want to know. I want to be sure. I want Jesus to be my Savior. Jesus, come into my life and save me in this hour. Or let this be your prayer. Say, God, save me by grace through faith as I believe on Jesus. Accept him as my Savior. And for each one of us here, let these words contribute to our, our life and our walk and following you we pray in Jesus name amen amen